Some of you may have heard of the infamous minister in the United Church of Canada. Her name is Greta Vosper. She identifies as an atheist. And she is a minister in the United Church of Canada. In fact, right near where Pastor Chris lives in Toronto is her church. Doesn't it seem absurd to claim to be an atheist and yet to act as a religious person? Conversely, doesn't it seem absurd to claim to be a religious person and yet act like an atheist? We all have inconsistencies in our lives, even as we confessed earlier in the service. We all have inconsistencies in our lives to some degree or another. Not always so extremely obvious or absurd as in Greta Vosper's case. But in between our new birth and the consummation of all things, we are simo justus et peccator. I'm sure I've just butchered the Latin. But this is Martin Luther's phrase, simultaneously justified and sinful. Paul says in Romans 7.19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Think, to give a simple example of the battle with the alarm clock that many of us, if not all of us, undergo each morning. We know that our relationship with God is the most important aspect of our lives. And yet, we act all too often like a few more minutes of sleep is more important. And we neglect to spend time with our Father before the day starts. Then we tell ourselves we'll read and pray after work or before bed. Again, because we know it is important to spend time with God in prayer, and in His Word. But after work and before bed, we find ourselves checking Facebook, or reading a novel, or watching TV, or perhaps even engaging in something sinful, instead of spending time in the Word and in prayer. And the day goes by without ever reading and praying. That's an inconsistency. Incongruence between our professed beliefs and our actions inconsistency. There's a failure to connect the dots, so to speak. It is a failure to make objective truths concretely true in our lives, felt true. It is a failure to allow truth to affect us, to shape us. Who here believes that it is true that wearing a seatbelt is safer than not wearing a seatbelt? Really, really, the jury's out on this one? <laughs> Statistically, we know that it is safer to wear a seatbelt than not to wear a seatbelt. But here's the question. Do you always wear one? If not, then you have not allowed the truth of the matter to actually affect you or to shape you. Or again, who here believes that it is true that exercising vigorously for 20 minutes, three or four days per week is good for your health. Again, that's true. So do you all exercise vigorously for 20 minutes, three to four times per week? Then you have not allowed the truth of the matter to actually affect you, to shape you. In Luke 1, 
which we just read, Zechariah has a moment of inconsistency or an instance of inconsistency. I say it was just a moment or just an instance because we're told in Luke 1.6 that Zechariah was righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So Zechariah wasn't characterized as being a hypocrite. He wasn't just a false professor. He was a godly man. But in Luke 1, we read about an instance or a moment of inconsistency in his life. The angel appeared to him and said, Your prayer has been heard. This is in verse 13. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And he goes on, the angel goes on to talk about that. Your prayer has been heard. Which means that either at that moment, Zechariah was praying for a son. Or, at another time, Zechariah had been praying for a son. But in any case, an angel appears to him and says, Your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son. So here's Zechariah's inconsistency. He did not believe. He said in verse 18, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Is this really true? How can this be true? He's questioning. He's doubting. This is an instance of inconsistency. Zechariah was a priest. And here are some pretty fair assumptions to make about priests, ministers, religious leaders in monotheistic religions. And incidentally, Greta Vosper, who I mentioned at the beginning, is simply an exception that proves the rule. Monotheistic priests, pastors, ministers, religious leaders generally are supernaturalists. They not only believe in God but profess to worship and trust Him. Judeo-Christian leaders specifically profess to expect a Messiah or a Christ. Monotheistic Spiritual leaders believe that they will benefit from their religion. And monotheistic spiritual leaders of various sorts believe that their lives are part of a bigger meta-narrative or story. Right? Those are some fair things we could probably say about all leaders, pastors, whatever you want to call them in monotheistic religions. That's why it shocks us when we hear about Greta Vosper professing to be an atheist. All of those things that I just said are generally true. In fact, almost universally true. So when the angel comes to a priest and says that something supernatural will happen, would it be consistent or inconsistent for a priest in a monotheistic religion to believe the angel? It would be consistent. It would be inconsistent for a priest in a monotheistic religion not to believe when the angel comes and says that God has heard his prayer, would it be consistent or inconsistent for Zechariah to believe the angel? Consistent. Again, why pray? Why bother to pray if we think that God does not hear our prayers? And he was a Jewish priest, which means that he was expecting a Messiah. So when the angel comes and says that the long-expected Messiah is now coming, would it be consistent or inconsistent for Zechariah to believe the angel? Consistent. 
It's, it's utterly inconsistent for him to disbelieve at this point. When the angel comes and says that Zechariah is about to benefit from his relationship to God, as God answers his prayer, again, it's inconsistent for Zechariah to disbelieve. And when the angel says to Zechariah that he, he and his son are going to play a role in the unfolding meta-narrative or the grand story of history, again, it's inconsistent for Zechariah to believe, to disbelieve this. It's the definition of being part of a monotheistic religion is that we believe that we're part of a story bigger than ourselves. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we have a role to play in this story bigger than ourselves. So do you see the inconsistency? Nothing should have seemed more normal to Zechariah than to actually have a spiritual experience in the holy place of the temple. To hear that God has actually heard his prayers and is both going to give him a son and also going to send the Messiah or the Christ shortly thereafter. But Zechariah does not believe the angel. He asks in verse 18, How shall I know this? Which indicates that he was skeptical. And verse 20 of Luke chapter 1 confirms that this is indeed the sense of Zechariah's question when the angel says, You did not believe my words. Now, leaving clergy aside and moving more specifically from monotheistic religions in general to Christianity, and even leaving clergy aside, what would be fair to assume about all Christians in general? How about the following? Everything I just listed. That we are supernaturalists. That we not only believe in God, but profess to worship and trust Him. That we believe Jesus is the long-expected Messiah or Christ. And that's where we get a little more specific. That we believe that we will benefit from our religion. And that we believe our lives are part of a bigger meta-narrative or story. Then if these things are true of us, or should be true of us, then why do we have instances of inconsistency, as Zechariah did? We struggle to believe that God actually hears and will answer our prayers. We struggle to believe that reading the Bible will actually nourish us and be a means of God's transformation in our lives. We struggle to believe that God actually knows what we do and think in secret and we conduct ourselves sinfully when nobody's watching. We sometimes feel like our lives are meaningless or insignificant rather than seeing ourselves as actors or players as Shakespeare would say in what Calvin called the theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power. Namely, this world in which we live. We struggle to believe that following Christ loyally and devotedly is actually the most beneficial thing for us. We struggle to worship only and always the one true God and we are constantly manufacturing idols for ourselves, displacing God as the supreme object of desire in our hearts. And so on. You get the idea. We often experience instances of inconsistency even as regenerate people, just as Zechariah did. 
Do you long for more consistency? For a closer walk with God? For more integrity? For more consonance between your public life and your private life? More harmony between your public life and your private life? Somehow, Zechariah was able to address the inconsistency in his life. We read verses 57 to 80 earlier, and we see that by the time that we get to that section of Luke chapter 1, that the inconsistency in Zechariah's life has been addressed. (coughs) In verse 63, Zechariah is adamant. His name is John. The one who once wavered now no longer does. The one who doubted enough to question an angel is now confident enough to stand before a crowd and say definitively, His name is John. Zechariah had been mute and deaf, it seems, since they had to make signs to communicate with him in verse 62. So he had been mute and deaf for nine months by this point, because remember, when he came out of the temple, he already couldn't talk. This was when the angels, uh, when the angel announced John's birth. So, for nine months, Zechariah had been mute and deaf, and as soon as his mouth is opened, he erupts into praise and prophecy. The first words out of his mouth are not about his family, or his experience in the temple, or his relief from being deaf, uh, about no longer being deaf and mute for nine months, but the first words out of his mouth are, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This man who could not grasp the simplicity of the angel's announcement has now grasped the complexity of biblical theology. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit pours forth a beautiful summary of the history of redemption. Wouldn't you love to hear words like this pouring forth from your mouth? Instead of the inconsistent speech of doubt, despair, crudeness, triviality, and levity that is so prevalent in the world and often creeps into our speech as well. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Wouldn't you love to have your heart changed so that the same type of speech that poured forth from Zechariah when his mouth was open also pours forth from your mouth on a consistent basis? Let's look then at how Zechariah's inconsistency was fixed. Let me say this up front. The text doesn't tell us explicitly. There's no verse that says this is how Zechariah changed. But as our confession tells us, there are legitimately biblical ideas that are not explicit, but are necessarily contained in the Scripture. And how Zechariah changed is one of them. But before we get to how Zechariah changed, let me briefly make a few comments on prophecy which will seem like a, like a digression at first, but I promise it is related. On rare occasions, God uses an instrument, whether a man or an animal even, to prophesy in a way that is completely out of character for it. Consider, for example, Balaam's donkey in Numbers 22. It's not 
making use of a donkey's normal range of operations in order to prophesy. He's not making use of a donkey's normal personality and proclivities in order to prophesy in that instance. In that instance, God is using the donkey as an instrument for prophecy in a way that is completely out of character for the donkey. Or Saul in 1 Samuel 1.10 prophesies. And the biblical portrait of Saul is that he was an ungodly, unregenerate person. So again, it's very much out of character for Saul to prophesy. So God does do that from time to time. But far more often, God uses the natural gifts and personality and proclivities of a speaker to communicate his message. When we say that we believe in verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, namely that every word of Scripture is inspired and not just the ideas, we do not mean that the Bible just dropped out of the sky in its final form. Somehow we believe that God superintended the process of inspiration in such a way that men with real personalities, real vocabularies, real life experiences wrote in their own style, but somehow that the very words that they wrote were God's words. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, speaking of prophecy, Peter says, "Men spoke. Men spoke." He adds that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But men spoke. In other words, well, God sometimes does use a person to prophesy completely against their nature. He more often uses people to prophesy in their own style, drawing on their own vocabulary and their own phrasing, so that it is proper to say that they spoke, even if they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is, why we, this is why Jesus can say Moses wrote such and such. Or why we in preaching will sometimes say Paul tells the Ephesians such and such. Because Moses really did write. And Paul really did speak. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But they really did speak. So here's the point as we come back to Zechariah. Which type of prophecy is happening here? Was Zechariah saying what he really didn't want to say about things that he really didn't know about? Or was Zechariah speaking from the overflow of his heart in synergism with the Holy Spirit's inspiration? We have indications here in the text that it is the latter. Again, in Luke 1 verse 6, we read that Zechariah was righteous and blameless. We read in... Luke 1 and verse 63, that Zechariah is decisive and takes God's side in the matter of naming his son. He says his name is John. And then in Luke chapter 1 and verse 64, we read that he spoke blessing God. Not motivated by fear. He wasn't motivated by fear, but love. He was, he had overwhelming overwhelmingly good things to say about God as his mouth was open. All of this means that Zechariah knew and understood what he was saying. He was drawing on his own body of knowledge, as it were. And he was saying what he really wanted to say, even though the Holy Spirit was speaking the very words of God through him. So now back to our main point. All of this is going somewhere. How Zechariah's inconsistency was fixed. 
in the months during which he was mute and deaf, he was not blind. Neither was he unable to think. As a priest, he may have had access to scrolls containing the Old Testament scriptures. But even if not, he had at least committed much of the Old Testament to memory as any good Jew would have done. And especially as any good priest would have done. So what, when we put two and two together, what we, the conclusion that we need to come to is that Zechariah meditated on Scripture over these nine months. That the angel appeared to him and he became mute and deaf. And he meditated on Scripture during the months that John was in the womb. Thinking over what the angel said. Thinking over the Scriptures. Trying to understand his life and circumstances in light of the Scripture. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind as some Eastern religions do, but rather saturating. Pastor Lee Powell in Toronto has articulated what he calls five M's of Christian meditation. The first is mutter. He, he says we should read it out loud, hear it over and over, just say it again and again. Memorize. That one is self-explanatory. Mince. Think it over. Think it over and over again. Chew it up as it were. Mince. Fourthly, move. Read the Bible. Meditate on the Bible for movement. What does this need to... How does this need to look in action in my life? How should this look in action in my life? How should my life be changed as a result of the Scripture? And then fifthly, Messiah. How does this portion of Scripture connect with the Christ? Though I'm quite sure that Zechariah didn't know the five M's in that form, I'm also quite sure that that's essentially what he did during the nine months before this prophecy. And he was transformed by the renewing of his mind. He was transformed by the Word of God in the hands of God's Spirit, illuminating its meaning to him, applying it to his life, convicting him of sin and encouraging him with the gospel. This is the way that our inconsistencies may be addressed too. We need to go back to the Bible. Kevin DeYoung wrote a piece on the Latin phrase, Semper Reformanda. Which means always being reformed. Semper Reformanda is not about constant fluctuations, DeYoung says but about firm foundations. It is about radical adherence to the Holy Scriptures, no matter the cost to ourselves, our traditions, or our own fallible sense of cultural relevance. Stand your ground, hold fast, guard the good deposit, and be open to change whenever we drift from the truth or fail to grow up in it, in it as we should. The motto of the Reformation was not forward, but backward. As in, back to the sources, ad fontes. End quote. When we see inconsistency in our lives, just as there was inconsistency in Zechariah's life, we need to address it the same way that Zechariah addressed it. We need to meditate on the Scriptures. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to put the five M's into practice. We need to go back and be recalibrated, readjusted by the Word of God in the hands 
of the Spirit of God. And when we aim to do that, we'll find that the Scriptures give us a worldview that makes sense of our lives and helps us, therefore, to live properly. It teaches us that there is a God in heaven, that we live in a supernatural universe. It teaches us that the universe is not unfolding randomly, that we're not, God is not reading the newspaper, so to speak, as we do morning by morning to figure out what's going on in the world and how He's going to respond to it, but it's unfolding as part of a plan, as part of a story which He is not a character in, but a story in which He is authoring. It will tell us that we live in a Christ-centered world. And I have a few quotes here on that point. Matthew Henry said, notes that in this section, verse 70, Luke 1 and verse 70, Zechariah says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Matthew Henry points out, not by the mouths, but by the mouth of the prophets. For they all speak of Christ as it were with one mouth. John Owen, no man was ever saved but by virtue of the new covenant and the mediation of Christ in that respect. Calvin, the power and efficacy of that redemption, which was once exhibited in Christ, have been the same in all ages. Gerardus Voss, the entire Christian life, root and stem and branch and blossom, is one continuous fellowship with Christ. John Calvin again, no grace, no love must be expected by us from God except through Christ's mediation. We find all of these things to be true as we go back and look at the Scriptures. We find these things working their way into our hearts, working their way into our minds as we meditate on the Scriptures. We'll realize that there is lots of blessing laid up for us in Christ Jesus. And I'm not talking about cars and money and clothes. But when... (coughs) In verse 69, when Zechariah says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us, most theologians, and I think that they're right, see this as speaking of God's power. A horn in Scripture is often used as a horn of an animal, a symbol of its strength. But Matthew Henry, I think, frankly, rather fancifully, I think he oversteps good exegesis on this point. But he talks about a horn like a cornucopia, what you sometimes see at Thanksgiving, full of all kinds of vegetables and and fruits and plenty. And he talks about how Jesus is a horn of salvation, not only in the sense of a power of salvation, but a plenitude of salvation. I don't think that's good exegesis, but I think that that's absolutely true. That in Him... In Him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. And that's a fullness not only uh, in respect to the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in Him, but the fullness that the Godhead desires to give to us comes to us in and through Christ. And so it's certainly a true idea. I think good truth and, and wrong verse to proof text it. Wrong verse to support it. But in Christ Jesus, there really is uh, blessing to spare that, that God loves us and God watches over us God cares for us God provides for us God walks with us day by day God nourishes us 
God strengthens us, God will never let us go, etc., etc. All of these things will work their way into our hearts and into our minds as we meditate on the Scripture. And as we meditate on the Scripture, all of this will lead us to doxology, as it led Zechariah to doxology. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And so, just as Zechariah had inconsistency, so we have inconsistency. And just as Zechariah was transformed by lengthy, consistent meditation on the Word of God over the nine months that John was in the womb, so we also may have our inconsistency remedied through constant meditation on Scripture and application of it to our lives, seeking to understand ourselves in light of the Scriptures. So would we all go back to the Scriptures and find glorious truths about Christ that encourage us in our Christian life and that edify us and that help us along day by day? And would we be transformed by the Scriptures to live more consistent lives, lives that are more in step with the truths that we profess to believe?